Hi there, and a very warm welcome to Season 4, Episode 22 of People Soup. It's Ross McIntosh here. I had no clue what I wanted to do when I left school. Uh, I just knew I didn't want a job. And so I wanted to go to university. And so I, I just thought I didn't know what I wanted to study, uh, really. But I just picked something that I thought I'd be interested in. So I ended up picking politics and psychology combined honours, it was. Ended up just doing psychology. I, I, I found more more sort of affinity with that. And then, but whilst I was doing that degree course, I went on a, a sort of assisted holiday with my brother as a, as a helper. And there I met an occupational therapist. And so I became aware of that as a, as a job. And I thought that might be something I could uh, turn my hand to as the, as the date that I was approaching, leaving university was fast approaching. So that's what I did. It's, it's, a, it's a real journey to go on at each, each training experience. And I find that really fascinating and fulfilling to, to go through that time. And there's also something to be said for, I think, I find like having your voice and being in a training environment and saying, this is what I think, this is my take on it. And it's not necessarily the take, it's not the right take, but it's certainly what I believe to be important and true at this point. And I think that's probably one of the things I found so intimidating initially. It's like, oh my gosh, like what could I possibly have to offer here and amongst everything else that's going on. And I, I found I did have something to offer and I found that people had found it useful and beneficial and that was different to perhaps what my mind was saying how it was going to be. And there was an intriguing journey to go on where as I contrasted the, the outcome of training experiences with how my mind relentlessly would predict it to be. I'm a classic one for in advance, my mind going, it will be terrible, it'll be awful. Too many people who are too bright and intelligent are gonna show up. If you're lucky at all, probably most likely no one's going to show up at all. And it's going to be just an awful event. And you've just heard Rich and then Joe, our two guests for this week. I'm delighted to share part one of my chat with Dr. Richard Bennett and Dr. Joe Oliver, both clinical psychologists and both legends in their field. They joined me on the show to talk about self-esteem at work. And I spent the first part of the conversation inviting them to share a bit more about themselves and their career trajectories, and I'm mighty glad I did. I've attended several trainings with the Bennett Olivers and also some solo gigs from each of them, and I learned so much more about them in this conversation. Both of them were very open, and their career trajectories have had some quite pivotal moments where they explored interesting, career-changing opportunities. We also hear about their stance towards training delivery and, of course, their song choices. People Soup is an award-winning podcast where we share evidence-based behavioural science in a way that's practical, accessible and fun to nourish your mind to flourish at work. Let's take a quick scoot over to the news desk because the reviews are in for part two of my chat with Ariana, researcher extraordinaire. Philip Addison on LinkedIn said... Great to hear Dr. Ariana Prudenzi talking about an exciting research project targeting prevention of mental health issues using ACT along with other strategies. In my opinion, we need to dial up the focus on proactive preventative support, otherwise we won't be able to dig ourselves out of the current mental health crisis we face. I'm also convinced that ACT has a crucial role to play. Thanks, Ariana, for enthusiastically flying the ACT flag. Amen to that, Philip. Thank you so much for listening and feeding back. And thanks to everyone who listened, shared and reviewed. For now, get a brew on and have a listen to part one of my chat with Rich and Joe.
So, P Supers, I am delighted to be joined by two lovely chaps here, Dr. Joe Oliver and Dr. Richard Bennett. Lads, welcome. Ross, thanks so much for having us. It's cool to be here. Yeah, hi, Ross. It's nice. I've listened to a few of these. It's nice to actually be here. That uh, feels like a real honor. Thank you. Oh, bless you. I hope you feel the same at the end. So, chaps, I've got you here to talk about a particular topic, but before we do that, I need to go over to my research department just to introduce you to, to our listener. So I'm going to go with Joe first. So Joe, just to see how well they've done. So it says here in my notes, Dr. Joe Oliver is an associate professor and consultant clinical psychologist with extensive experience working in the NHS with a wide range of problems and issues. Joe is trained in cognitive behavioral therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy, and he regularly lectures, teaches, and supervises other professionals in these approaches. How are we doing so far, Joe? Does that sound right? Yeah, these are, these are all true facts. Excellent. Looks like my research department might be on for a sort of bonus. Let's keep going. Joe is also an author. He's co-edited the textbook, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy and Mindfulness for Psychosis, and also co-author of the self-help book, Activate Your Life, and several textbooks, including Act for Psychosis Recovery, Acceptance and Commitment Coaching, Act 100 Key Points and Techniques, and most recently, the Mindfulness and Acceptance Workbook for Self-Esteem. And that last one is actually the book we're going to be talking about a bit later on. I'm going to carry on, Joe, because there's more. I can't believe how, what a busy lad you are. Joe is the founder and director of Contextual Consulting, who provides training, supervision, and therapy in ACT and Contextual Cognitive Behaviour Therapies in the UK. I'm going to say in the UK and beyond, Joe, because in the virtual world... Exactly. The reach is extended these days. We, we go far beyond the UK. Europe, America, Canada, even Australia and New Zealand. Well, there you go. Back to the homeland. Indeed. So, it seems like my research department did pretty well for that bit, Joe. I'm going to try the same with you, Rich. Richard is a chartered clinical psychologist and associate fellow of the British Psychological Society, which sounds very lofty, Rich. Thank you. Yeah, it, it does sound. I, I, sometimes I read back this stuff and I, I wonder, is it really me? I'm here to tell you it is. But... <laughs> <laughs> it's a relief. Because if my research department say it is so, then that's it. Richard has more than 20 years experience working as a healthcare professional within the NHS and private practice. He also founded Think Psychology, which provides psychological therapy services, training and supervision. He's a lecturer in cognitive behavioral therapy within the psychology department at the University of Birmingham, regularly lecturing students training in medicine, clinical psychology, physiotherapy and social work. And Rich is another busy lad. He has some media activity going on as an advocate for psychological well-being. He's worked as a consultant for TV and theatre productions and has contributed to commercial radio and magazine articles. His work in the field of mental health care has also been published in books and peer-reviewed journals. And there's more. He's also an author, co-editor of Rational Emotive Behaviour Therapy in Sport and Exercise, co-author of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, 100 Key Points and Techniques, and also co-author of the book I mentioned with Joe, The Mindfulness and Acceptance Workbook for Self-Esteem. And there's one more, Rich, would you believe? I don't know how you boys fit all this in. You also have more than 10 years of experience as an expert witness in complex criminal and civil court cases. Boom. How have they done, Rich? Well, if I was holding this mic, I'd drop it. 
right now. <laughs> There's one other thing my research department picked up. Let me just get there. It's a late entry from their research. And they said that Joe and Rich are in talks to launch a Proclaimers Tribute Act with the possibility of a residency at the San Francisco ACBS conference. Now, boys, is there anything you can confirm or deny at this stage? We didn't really want to make the announcement this early, but since you have brought it up, yeah, this is true. It's unfortunate this is a podcast because you can't see the uncanny resemblance. Rich, did you want to demonstrate the Scottish accents we've been working on? (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I think they're best kept under wraps. Um, we spent years working on the the two Ronnies material, and then you know when the Proclaimers thing we just see as a as a kind of a, an extension of that. You know, we've got the glasses, so where else could it take us? I'm not sure I'll be at the conference this year, so I'm just hoping there will be be video footage of you doing that. The, the accents, the accents is the bit. I'm just thinking of it. What's a proclaim? Five hundred miles, and I would walk five hundred. Oh, I sound not Scottish. That's odd. Well, yeah. If if you keep working on it, though, we, we might better find a place for the, the third proclaimer. That's, <gasps> that's a possible. We're not going to rule that out. Marvelous. Thank you, boys. Thank you for that bombshell. And I'd just like to spend some time with each of you, just introducing you in a bit more depth to the listeners. So, Joe, I wonder if I could start with you. We, we've had a little insight into who you are, but I wonder. If you could just outline some brief highlights for us on what's led you to where you are today, maybe some pivotal moments in your career and your trajectory. Well, it's uh, it's been an interesting one. I started out as my undergrad thinking I was going to be- become a computer scientist. And uh, there was one possibility, and I was thinking maybe an engineer, electrical engineer. My dad was an electrician, so I thought, that's me. Uh, and after failing chemistry, physics, and calculus, I got some pretty clear feedback that might not be the pathway. So I thought what's easy? And psychology seemed easy, a lot of multi-choice exams. And so I ended up in psychology and peculiarly ended up in a field that actually I absolutely loved, uh, really pushed and extended me. And I loved the science. And I, and I, I guess I sort of loved the space where I could step into and talk about emotions and feelings and have those sort of validated. And that could be part of work. And I think as a young New Zealand lad, that was a really interesting place for me. And I just thrived in that environment and loved my university career. And in that space, I also did a a PhD in occupational psychology and uh, entered the murky world of occupational stress. And uh, my PhD concluded key finding that it turns out, according to my research, at least that managerial support is a really key factor in stress. Who knew that I was there to provide the data for that? Well, blimey, Joe, I need to be quoting your PhD in my workplace. There we go. You can quote that. There we go. You can take that from me. Yes. Um, anyway, it was one of those things I think uh, that sort of stood out to me. And I'd always had dreams and aspirations of moving into the workplace or taking some of the ideas that I was learning about in a therapy setting in that direction. And well, I know this from Rich, that for both of us, the, the appeal of, of a model like acceptance and commitment therapy is its versatility and how to drop it into in all walks of life and all places, whether it be at work or at home or with the kids or with partners at work. It's, a, it's a, that ability to let it be in all those places. I just find fascinating. And so my career then has evolved in all sorts of unexpected directions as, as a result. And currently I'm deeply involved in training, uh, training other professionals uh, in these models and thinking about organizing events and bringing people together at the moment, all online. And I've become exceptionally skilled at uh, event organization, which I did not have any training for. Uh, so you show me a room of 200 people and I'll know exactly how many cups of tea they'll need and how many cucumber sandwiches and the amount of print 
printouts and all that. I mean, all kind of stuff that I didn't think I'd need to know, but I do know inside out now. So that's that's sort of been a, a an interesting career progression for me, thinking about training and supervising others and thinking about what I needed as a, as a young professional, helping people move onwards and upwards. And I, I think that for me, just this wanting to convey the excitement, the utility I've had from this model and how I see it working in all these different areas and how, finding ways to be able to do that and increasingly more effective or wider spreading ways. I can't remember, Rich, you might know who originally came up with that idea of getting ACT into the water supply. It's like a lot of things in ACT. They're familiar to me, but I don't know where they come from. I think it's the, the kind of open source ethos that exists within the community that lots of great ideas just yeah. filter through and it's it's hard to, to remember exactly where they came from. Yeah, I, th- I think this is one of them, isn't it? So that idea of this sort of spreading, not in a cholera kind of way, but, you know, in a, in a <laughs> helpful like fluoride and water or something like that. Yeah, let's go with fluoride. But that, just get, uh, getting those ideas out there to people, you know, who might, schools, for example, in, in the workplace, well-being, uh, leaders, managers, you know, into relationships or all the areas that, that can benefit from this. So those are some of the things that excited me. And, and to be honest, as much as the nerd in me would like to say it's the science that excites me, it does. But a lot of it's been my own personal experience and and helping me through walk through some pretty dark places at times and or some pretty stuck places in life and bring some uh, agility to those moments and I don't know flexibility and you know learn about who I am and what I'm about and and ways that I think I might not have had or not come across this model. So uh, that's that's part of my excitement comes from that. Thanks, John. I'm feeling your excitement there. I'm hearing it. And I think it makes the, the training experience for those who come on courses that, that you deliver, as someone who has done that over several years, I think it makes it a more profound experience for the attendees when you can really bring to life experiences from your life and how it's impacted on you. I think it makes it a really quite profound and authentic way of learning i think it really enhances the learning experience right yeah i'm pleased to hear you say that and i just want to go back to the beginning of what you said joe because you said (laughs) if i got this right you said oh what looks easy ah psychology lots of multiple choice type things so it was it feels like it was almost a almost a, a chance thing oh very much so yeah how i made my decision was absolutely on a whim yeah, I remember the moment I was standing outside a pub in Napier, New Zealand, a pint in my hand, and someone said, I'm studying psychology in Wellington, and it just spoke to my soul. I've never had that experience before. Honestly, it sounds ridiculous. Something lit up inside me, and I just said, that's what I want to do. That's where I want to go, and that's where I want to be doing that. And I don't know, I just kind of followed that instinct from there throughout a lot of my career, and it st- stood me in good stead. I wouldn't say I had good eyes on exactly what was going on then, but I think it was something true. Wow, it feels like there was some something quite mega going on there that your purpose was answering. It could have, it could have been the beer too, I'm <laughs> sure, but you know, maybe it was the purpose as well. <laughs> do you remember, Joe, when you first came across ACT? I do, I do, absolutely, yeah. It was uh, in London and a good friend of mine, Eric Morris. Eric has just got this, he's got this nose for, for being in the cutting edge of stuff. And he's always there sniffing out cool new innovations. And predictably, he was there with ACT years ahead of anyone else that I knew. And he, he was reading about it, interested in it, and, you know, right into it at that point. And for me, there was the acceptance piece spoke really, really deeply to me. And here was another instance of sort of being guided by something just inside going, hey, I want to find out more about that. 
I could hear in there this notion of self-acceptance. And I think that spoke to me, of course, when my own journey, just this notion of like, maybe I don't need to radically change. I don't need to be different. Maybe just underneath it all kind of okay. And the sort of soothing slowness to this that really warmed me. Yeah. It was profound. Yeah. The, the legend that is Eric Morris. And you went on to co-author the book, The Activate Your Life with, with Eric and John. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Joe, you talked about being in the unexpected place where you're running trainings to, to reach more people with the science from ACT and contextual behavioral science. And that was a bit of an unexpected move for you. So you're open to these new ventures. Is there a value behind that for you? Is, is it the water supply motivation? Yeah, uh, undoubtedly. Not that training is the only way to do it, but it's certainly a way to reach large numbers of people and organizing, but also speaking to people and, and throwing into the ring some of my ideas. I find this endlessly hilarious because of someone who had probably a full-blown phobia of speaking in public. It's it's hilarious to me that most of my career now is around training and that I, I step into the arena and I enjoy it and I love it. And so that's, I think, just one of those funny twists and turns that life takes and, and our careers take. And I, I like that unexpectedness has happened in that way. I, I didn't map this out, but just I've gone in this direction and ended up in this place. And it turns out it's a, it's, it's a really enjoyable place to be. Very unexpected, but really uh, enjoyable and exciting. Sometimes scary as hell, I'll be honest, but there's a lot of, a lot of richness and meaning wrapped up in there. Thank you for expanding on that. And I'm going to come back to your collaborative work in a moment. But Rich, I'd like to, to turn the spotlight onto you, if I may, and just ask you a similar question. We've heard a little bit about you, but all the threads of what you're doing right now, what's your career trajectory been like? Are there any pivotal moments that you'd share with the P-Supers? Well, I'd like to say that it was all really planned and organized and ordained somehow, but but it's not the case. Um, I, I mean, if there's one moment, I suppose, it's probably the birth of my brother. So uh, when I was two, uh, uh, my brother was born and he has a, he has a very significant physical disability, uh, which he's had from birth. And so I suppose I've always been around someone who needed you know needed more than I needed I guess and so I've always been very cognizant of the idea that there are people around who who just need some looking after I'm guessing I was always probably headed for some kind of career in the in the helping professions as a consequence of that I don't think I really knew that myself and I was listening to some stuff about the student loan situation in the, in the UK yesterday and I'm reflecting on how lucky I was that back in my day you could just pretty much just go to university the government would bung you some free money to do that and it didn't really matter if you had a plan or not you could just pick a subject and they'd pay for you to go and do it I had no clue what I wanted to do when I left school uh, I just knew I didn't want a job and so I wanted to go to university and so I, I just thought I, I didn't know what I wanted to study uh, really but I just picked something that I thought I'd be interested in so I ended up picking politics and psychology combined honours it was ended up just doing psychology I, I, I found more more sort of affinity with that and then but whilst I was doing that degree course I went on a, a sort of assisted holiday with my brother as a, as a helper and um, there I met an occupational therapist and so I became aware of that as a, as a job and I thought that might be something I could uh, turn my hand to as the as the date that I was approaching leaving university was fast approaching so that's what I did I did a two-year it was like a 
sort of postgraduate course in occupational therapy, qualified to become an occupational therapist and, and worked in the NHS doing that for several years. Whilst I was doing that, I um, I did a course, like a year-long course in, in CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. And at the interview, the interviewer asked me, they said, so you're interested in doing a, a course in therapy and you've got a psychology degree. Why aren't you a clinical psychologist? And uh, I took one look at the pay scale and thought, that's a, that's a good idea. Um, so I, so, I, <laughs> so I, took the, I took the decision to retrain, which was quite a, quite a big thing, I suppose, at the time. So I had to take a significant sort of pay cut and move across the country to, to go and retrain as a, as a clinical psychologist. Uh, but yeah, I, I think uh, I, that was my niche, really. I found that much more up my alley, so to speak, than, than occupational therapy. I was always much more attracted to the psychological aspects of that job than, than the physical aspects. I could tell you a very funny story about a long-handled shoehorn one day, but it's, it's not fit for, for this podcast, I don't think. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah. I've heard this story. It's a good story. You should tell it. <laughs> and we can delete it out afterwards, right? <laughs> so, yeah, so I ended up in, in, in psychology and it's, it's interesting. My, you know, my, my therapist reflected with me once that of, of all the things that I might have done as, you know, if you think, if you take about, think about the value of helping, like that's say that's just kind of in me, of all the helping things I could have done, I've ended up working as a clinical psychologist. And of all the things a psychologist does, I've ended up doing therapy. And then of all the things a therapist could concern themselves with, I'm, I'm interested in acceptance and commitment therapy, which Joe has already sort of talked about as being this very humane way of dealing with the human condition. And then, and then you know, of all the things that ACT might concern itself with, it, it, I am with Joe getting very interested in, in all the stuff that how, it, how ACT might relate to, to the self and how we relate to our sense of self. So her, her reflection back to me was you're, you're clearly on a bit of a, a journey to find something that was that was maybe somewhere you know missing somewhere from your childhood that's some sort of understanding of of who you are as a person and how you fit into the world so I think there's probably a lot of truth in that. Wow thanks Rich thanks for being so open I think it really brings to life the the direction but also the shifts in direction how that happened again a little bit by chance not perhaps knowing what a what a clinical psychologist was. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, no design in it really. Um, and then you know, similarly, since so I had a long career in the NHS, but then I've moved into academia. I suppose you, one gets to a point where you can only see so many individuals, uh, you know, as a therapist, and there's a, a sense starts to grow that I could probably be doing a bit more or influencing the world a bit more widely. So, I, you know, I guess in workplaces, that's why people get promotions, right? And they, they take managerial mm. positions. Um, but a managerial position never particularly appealed to me, and and so I suppose my way of influencing more people was to go into into teaching, in training therapists, training psychologists. Um, so I do a lot of that in, in my job at university, and and now now do a lot of that in my private practice too, as as well as maintaining a you know a clinical caseload. And so I continue mm. to provide therapy, continue to provide supervision to to other therapists, but also do a lot a lot of training. Which, again, like Joe, really, I would never have seen myself as a as someone that stood in front of a, a group of people and spoke for hours on end. But yeah, I get I get a huge amount from that. I find that really, really rewarding to, to help people. It's to help people help other people, I suppose. I like what I'm getting from you, the, the, the shift into academia to maybe reach more people or in, influence more people or make more people aware. Because it, it resonates with me because I'm actually reducing my coaching practice at the minute and focusing more on 
working with groups of people because I think one of my motivations is there are people in the workplace who are suffering and if I can offer stuff to groups then maybe I can get skills and perspectives to more people who are suffering rather than going one by one I know I'm not the only person doing this but but I think it's a real motivation to me to move to that group-wide team stuff can you remember when you first discovered ACT Rich? I can, yes. So my background in CBT was I was much more interested in the work of Albert Ellis and his rational emotive behavior therapy, which which always right from the 50s, stressed concepts like acceptance as, as being useful to people like pragmatically useful, like maybe it's if you want to achieve certain things in your life, it's useful for you to accept some of the discomfort that's going to come along with that and it's that you know that old idea that as soon as you step outside of your comfort zone you're going to get discomfort and that's just how it is and and it would be useful for you to to work on accepting that so i was always primed i think for 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 the act message to land well with me but i wasn't particularly aware of it until 2010 I went to a world conference, a world CBT conference, and I saw Steve Hayes speak. I understood about 20% of what he said. You know, the, the, the guy's got a brain the size of Africa and, and uh, he's, he's not not always the most uh, accessible person to listen to. But I, I just, there was something in what he said and that, that really resonated, just this idea of not working so hard on trying to change or challenge people's thoughts, which as a therapist, that was always the the bit of CBT that I struggled with, I think. Like I knew how to do it. And I think the clients that I worked with knew how to do it too. And they understood that they would be much better off if they thought different thoughts. It's just that they didn't. If you've got a long history of uh, having thoughts about not being good enough, for example, they're probably not going to go away. You know, they're probably with you for life. So I think it's more, the question is more about how do you learn to live alongside of them? So that, that, you know, that message of how could we learn to accept our, our discomfort and move forward in the direction of things that we care about anyway, that really resonated, thought would be useful professionally, but also, you know, as, as Joe said, resonated with me personally, helping me deal with some of the, the things in life I struggle with. So I never really looked back. I suppose I made a gradual progression from a more traditional CBT therapist to, to someone who primarily works from an ACT perspective these days. Thank you. And when did when did you two first meet and think, hey, I like the cut of your jib. Let's work together. How did that happen? Do you remember? I remember. I just I'm interested to know if you remember. I know. I know exactly. Yeah. I know. I know. Oh, actually, I'm not sure where. I've got a picture of it. Oh, I know. I think I do know where it was. But I remember what we bonded over definitely. And I remember we spoke about. It and I thought, this is a guy I'm going to get on with. I'll tell you what my memory is. And if I th- if it's correct, it was at the London conference, one of the first ACT conferences, I don't know, 10, 10 years ago, maybe. And I remember running into you and sitting down at a table somewhere outside, just one of those kind of passing conference moments you have, which is the great thing about being in the same place with a whole bunch of people. And you and I bonded over Doctor Who. That's how I remember it anyway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't remember. We were speaking. Oh, you were telling me about a, a Doctor Who podcast that you'd been listening to. And I was like, oh, that sounds awesome. And I, I went home straight after that and listened to it whole way through the next week and immersed myself into Doctor Who. I uh, brought up all my memories as a kid sitting in front of the black and white TV watching John Pertwee run around and Patrick Trout and the whole business. And uh, and that was that moment I thought, hey, I, I found a, a kindred spirit here. 
It was, I'll tell you why I mentioned that to you at the time, was because the two people that presented it were, were Antipodean. I can't remember whether they're Australian or New Zealanders, but uh, they reminded me of you and Eric. And that, that, uh, that's why I mentioned it to you. They were too. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And you probably preface that you, like something like, oh, you must know these people. You're related to these people, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking. But yeah, no, I know. That's that's right. Yeah. That was, uh, it was a key moment of uh, us connecting. And Gosh, here, here we are doing this thing, which is, I feel like, is one of these funny journey pathways and the amount of work that you and I have done together. And it's, who would have thought, didn't plan it, super unexpected, but the writing we've done, the thinking, the, I'm so influenced by you, Rich, over the years in terms, in terms of all the projects we've done, but in terms of the training that I do and writing, uh, there's a whole lot of stuff that are, I draw from your ideas and just you and how you embody act. And it's, it's such, a, such a pleasure to have this kind of working collaboration. It's, it's a rare thing, I think, and I, I, I know I'm really lucky and I feel super privileged. Oh, what a lovely thing to say. Thank you very much. Is your recollection of the first meeting the same, Rich? Well, I think we might have met once previously. Well, I think we did because I, I came to a training that you and Eric did, a uh, one-day training in London on, on using ACT in psychosis. So I was working in a forensic mental health setting at the time and most of my caseload were people with uh, diagnoses of psychotic nature. And so I came to a training and I was interested in putting on some ACT training at the university. And I, I spoke to you afterwards. I came up to you like one of those groupies after the training and asked for your advice about, um, I think I was concerned. I didn't want to tread on anyone's toes. I didn't want to do anything that would upset the ACT community. So I spoke to you for some advice. But it was a very brief conversation that you probably don't remember. I, I do remember that. Um, yeah, absolutely. I feel like the, the Doctor Who was the time we like really, yeah, that, really yeah, met. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> guys thank you so much for sharing a bit about your backgrounds i see you both as these courageous curious explorers who are open to the possibilities that life presents and are prepared to explore new avenues i love it because i think quite a lot of the time we think that our career paths will be fixed when we're quite young and and then we've decided and that's it but i love the way you both bring to life the the shifts and turns and taking opportunities and exploring i, I love it and i think it role models a great deal for for all of us i wish uh, i'd had that conversation if i've had you say that to me when i was about 16 years old just sort of say hey chill out it can roll it can be all sorts of things i know it's a different climate to be studying and career selecting at the moment but at the same time this possibility that we can shift and change and, and be flexible. That's a nice thing to know about. And I'm glad I had the the experience of changing career. I mean, I'm not saying it's it's for everybody, but I, I, I do recall a lot of people at the time were not happy in their, in their roles. Um, some of my colleagues at the time in, in occupational therapy. And I just, I don't know, I've always kind of think, well, you, you don't have to do it, right? You, you, if, you, if you're in a job that you really don't like, you don't have to stay there. It, it is possible. It might, it might be some effort involved, but it's possible to move, change direction, to do something different. Like the idea of just being stuck in one place, doing one thing from, you know, from now until retirement is quite depressing. And another thing that attracted me to ACT was I remember Steve Hayes saying, about the ACT model, he said, and what felt to me like quite an antidote to the way lots of people speak about their baby, their, their psychological model. He said, the ACT model is wrong. We just don't know how yet, which sort of gave me great sort of enthusiasm for the idea that this might change and evolve and grow and develop. And in 10 years time, the therapy I'm doing might be quite different from what I'm doing now. And that, that was quite exciting. 
which I guess, you know, not for everyone. Some people like to know exactly what they're doing and they like to, they like sort of familiarity and predictability, but not me, you know, I kind of like things to move and change and, and develop, but it's a, it's a useful experience. And then it is one that I do share with other people that the, the possibility of, of making significant change in your life, if, if you want to. Thank you. And guys, there's one other thing that I'd just like to explore with you both is it, is this idea that you're now both highly skilled and experienced trainers. And that's kind of a, it feels like that's a surprise to you both and perhaps something you never imagined you would do, particularly Joe described it as a, a phobia. I wonder if you'd mind just unpicking that how a little bit, how it came to be that you thought, oh, here I am doing some training. Let's do some more. What was that process like? I wonder, Rich, if you wouldn't mind starting. If I could use a metaphor. So I'm really into football. And um, on one occasion, if people are familiar with the way football works in the UK, so if you're not in the Premier League, you're not in the top division, if you're in the division below that, there's this procedure where the, the top few teams have playoffs against each other and the final two teams get to play a final at Wembley and the winner gets promoted to the golden promised land of the, the Premier League. And I, I went to uh, one of these Wembley finals with my uh, team, West Bromwich Albion. And I remember thinking, this is great. You know, like a day out at Wembley, everything you could, you could want, the, the, all the thrills and spills of football. I just hope we don't win. You know, I hope we don't get promoted to the Premier League because that will be awful. Like we we are not good enough and, and we will get beaten every week and it'll be miserable. And so we, I went along and we lost and great, you know, had a great day out and um, back, you know, back to the familiar ground of the, of the championship the following year. I kind of compare my job at the university to a bit like that. Every year I get this new cohort of enthusiastic people who are dead excited about the opportunity to, to learn their craft as, as therapists. And then when they finish, you know, they get promoted. They have to go and do the hard stuff with, you know, real clients and much less support without the safe confines of the university supervision and all the rest of it. And I just get to do it all over again. I get to have another crop of enthusiastic new trainees. And so I feel really privileged. So it's kind of like a buzz, really. And I, I get my addiction gets spread every year because I get these new group of people who are just really enthused to learn. And I love that. I just love being around the enthusiasm of people keen to, to learn and develop their, their, their skill and their knowledge. Thank you, Rich. Joe, Joe, any reflections from you? Training is a funny thing. It's, uh, it's, it's never what I expect it to be. And I think one of the most peculiar things I've found about training is just, this is a bit of a cliche, I know to say, but how much I learn when I'm training. And I feel like I'm at my peak knowledge after I've done a workshop, both because I'm better to walk the talk and, and breathe the words and, and know what I'm talking about uh, and sort of drop into the knowledge and, and the skill and the practice gets me thinking so much about it. So if I'm doing a workshop, I'll be thinking about it for a month in advance and reading and pondering. And then afterwards, I'll be thinking about all the responses I've had from people and their own reflections and what they say works and where they can see changes happening. And it's, it's, a, it's a real journey to go on in each, in each training experience. And I I find that really fascinating and fulfilling to to go through that time and there's also something to be said for i think i find like having your voice and being in a training environment and saying this is what i think this is my take on it and it's not necessarily the take it's not the right take but it's certainly what i believe to be important and true at this point and i think that's probably one of the things i found so intimidating initially it's like oh my gosh like what could i possibly have to offer 
here and amongst everything else that's going on. And I, I found I did have something to offer and I found that people had found it useful and beneficial and that was different to perhaps what my mind was saying how it was going to be. And there was an intriguing journey to go on as I contrasted the the outcome of training experiences with how my mind relentlessly would predict it to be. I'm a classic one for in advance, my mind going, it will be terrible, it'll be awful. Too many people who are too bright and intelligent are gonna show up. If you're lucky at all, probably most likely no one's gonna show up at all. And it's gonna be just an awful event. And then post hoc, and then it'll be a, a rumination on, oh gosh, that was the worst thing ever. That went wrong, that went wrong. And so this journey for me has been learning to work with that uh, and be effective with that. And Rich, you alluded to this before, which is my probably my instinct was to either push that away and just try and ignore it or to get into that. Well, you know, I've got a PhD. I've got a doctor title before my name. I know this. I've read this many books and I've written an academic paper, blah, blah, blah. All of which, if I'm lucky, might kind of just quieten that voice down into a strategic retreat for, you know, half an hour at best and before it comes flying back. I found those kind of approaches to be limited at best for me. And the, the approaches I've found to be more effective is finding this different relationship with that side of me. And I, I've got a, a much easier relationship with it now, uh, a much more understanding when I get it. I understand why it does that. And truth be told, I can occasionally appreciate it for what it does. So that has facilitated me be able to step into a training space and to be much more authentic, much more myself and much more truthful with what I know and also what I don't know. And when I enter into that space, I don't need to pretend. I don't need to cover up. I don't need to hide. I can just step into there and, and be myself. Uh, and I find that uh, a fascinating place to be. And I, I believe that's something that's really important for training, I think. But also for lots of other areas in work, when I'm doing therapy and coaching, of course, super important. But if I'm working with teams, working with, within a group of people and with I watch kind of leaders too, who do do that, enter into that space of allowing themselves to be themselves, I feel that's uh, really important. Beautiful. Thanks. Thanks, guys. I love to hear about the buzz you get from it and the enthusiasm you both have for it, but also that, that journey you've been on and your openness. And I really like that you're both really enthused with hey, this could all change and it might be be different and I'm going to evolve with that and I'm excited by what might happen next. Guys, I'm just going to finish off this little segment by asking you something I ask all my guests for a song choice. The idea is this song choice is something that would announce your arrival into a room, whether it's a real room or a virtual room for the next few weeks. It's not forever, but like in your house or in a virtual room or when you go to the supermarket, this song would suddenly play when you entered that space. So I'm just going to, I'm going to start with Rich. Rich, what's, what's your song choice, please? Well, I've been more stressed about this question than anything else, to be honest. I've always had a big interest in music and I'd always part of my self-concept is like, I've got to, I've got to appear relevant, right? I've got, I've got to stay being relevant. Now I'm in my fifties. It's even harder. So I was going to say um, Shays Long by Wet Leg, just because I think it's cool and present and by far and away the best song I heard last year. But it, that would be disingenuous. So the, 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 the thing that is really, I think, sums me up is a song by a band called Trampoline. And it is called Gotta Do More, Gotta Be More. Um, the song is relentless and it sounds like my mind constantly berating me and pushing me and telling me I'm not enough. Um, so that would be the song that most sums me up, I think. You'd be surprised to hear it. I don't know this song or the other one about wet legs or something. But um, 
I'm very much firmly stuck in the 80s, but um, <laughs> I will play a little clip of this over that. I'm intrigued as to what it might sound like, so I will play a little snippet. Thank you. Joe, what's your choice? I tell you, with Rich, this is like by far the most intimate personal question anyone's asked me. And I, I'm like nervously sweating, thinking, oh my God, what's this going to reveal about me? Have I thought about I haven't thought about this enough. Okay. And there's, it's ridiculous that the thing that uh, came up straight away, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to change. I'm going to stick with it. It's Eye of the Tiger. And it's, to me, I just love, love the cheese of that song. But set aside the cheese, what I most love about this song is the enthusiasm and the energy and just the pumped upness of that. Uh, and I can just imagine myself flowing into a room, platform heels with flares on and just flowing in and just kind of like just being, ah, there I am. And that's what I'm hoping you can have that song charging uh, yeah. as I mean, yeah. how could you not just kind of like get fully behind that? Isn't that just the most enthusiastic empowering kind of chord progression you're going to hear just that solid beat thumping away that, that is that is ring ring walk music isn't it i i can see you doing that with your with your dressing gown on and uh <laughs> th throwing torches around <laughs> <laughs> i i didn't want to have to say it but yeah you're right absolutely yeah. definitely that's like uh charging down yeah oh you've made my day with your dressing gown on <laughs> But it will be a nice silk dressing gown. It won't be a... Oh, yes, it'll flow. It'll flow. A ropey old frayed one. Oh, no, no, no. With terry toweling like mine. <laughs> no, it'll be quality. <laughs> nice. That's it. Part one in the bag. Thanks so much to Joe and Rich for being so open and co-creating such a fun space for our conversation. Tune in next time where we'll delve into an exploration of self-esteem at work with the boys. I guarantee you'll find their take on it fascinating. If you like this episode or the podcast, could I invite you to share it with one other person? I'm really keen to spread the behavioral science and skills with more people. Of course, a subscription, follow, rating or review are also very much appreciated and they help us reach more people with stuff that could be useful. The show notes for this episode are at rossmackintosh.co.uk. And this includes links to a few different platforms. I love to hear from you and you can get in touch at peoplesoup.pod at gmail.com. On Twitter, we are at peoplesouppod. On the gram, we are at people.soup. And on Facebook, we are at peoplesouppod. Thanks to Andy Glenn for his spoon magic and Alex Engelberg for his vocals. And most of all, dear listener, thanks to you. Look after yourselves, peasoupers, and bye for now. My mind is going, but no one's interested in that. Just listening, listening to me banging on about myself. Who cares about that? Well, I, I, I assure you they will be, and we can. I'll, I'll share with you the listening stats. <laughs> Fingers crossed. If, if, share, share them if they're good.